Thank you, guys. I apologize for my voice. It's uh, <clears throat> my Barry White. I almost said Barry Manilow earlier, but my wife corrected me and said, no, it's not Barry Manilow. It's Barry White. My Barry White impersonation, so hopefully it's not a distraction to you. I hope I don't lose it. Um, <clears throat> but um, it's good to be here. I have to admit, I was just thinking as I was uh, singing and, uh, you know, I feel a little bit this topic, I don't know if you've looked ahead, <clears throat> it's a pretty weighty topic. It's a big topic. It's, it's a huge topic with huge implications. And, I, and honestly, I feel like the thought that came to my mind was I was sitting in a rocking chair <clears throat> with a room full of cats, and I'm just desperately afraid to of what's going to come out, how many tails I'm going to roll over. Um, but as Matt reminded us last week, I don't need to fear man. I just need to fear God. And I need to preach what, um, what he's been stirring in me and what I feel um, he's communicating to us as a church through this parable of the rich fool. Um, you know, as we said last week, Matt taught us the importance of overcoming the fear of man with the fear of God. If we have any hope of staying in tune with this gospel message and being on mission, we have to get over the obstacle of our fear of man. It's a must. And as Jesus was preparing his disciples for going into the battlefield, he knew that persecution was coming. He knew that fear of man was going to be an obstacle. <clears throat> so he addressed it. Likewise, this week, Jesus is dealing with another obstacle, our money, our wealth, more particularly covetousness. It's an obstacle to the mission, and it needs to be addressed. So the context is still the same. It's the fear of God over other things. It's the fear of God, and, and it's, it's the focus of being on mission and submitting to his rule in our life. And our fearing God or not will have an effect on how we view our money and our things, our material possessions, our abundance. And make no mistake, everybody in this room is rich, is abundant. So this parable applies to everyone in this room who has more, even in the poorest person in this room has more than half the, over half, a large majority of the people around this world and even around this country. It's been said that the Bible talks more about money than heaven and hell combined. I'm inclined to believe them because the more I study and the more I read and the more I live life, the more I constantly bump up against Jesus or God telling us and talking and warning us about the dangers of money. And so I can't possibly, this could be a conference, I can't possibly say all that there is to say in one 40-minute, 40 45, whatever long this takes. I'm going to try to focus on the parable. I'm going to try to focus on what's here and not explore too far. But, <clears throat> but based on my own experience, like I said before, this is a huge topic with huge implication, and it's one of the biggest threats to our being the church, to the gospel mission and our light in our community. 
It's a big threat. Now, Jesus promised that he was going to build his church. And yes, we so often so inclined to think that it's about these kingdoms, this kingdom of Satan and this battle and this unforeseen or this unseen world that he is forging his kingdom and he is building his church. But we often forget about the war that wages in our hearts. <clears throat> the gates of hell that still resides in our hearts, the flesh that still wants to cling to the things that are of this world, that's still focused on ourselves and still hates God and hates what we read in his word. Those gates of hell will not prevail, and we need to believe that, and we need to celebrate that. But we need God's help. God's promised to do it, <clears throat> and he does it through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so let's go to him and pray this morning that he would help us. Father, we, we sing and we celebrate and we <clears throat> have one person in view when we sing, when we gather here, and it's you. It's Jesus Christ, the one who is worthy of all of our praise and <clears throat> all glory, all dominion. He is the only one who is worthy to open the scroll to restore things as you intended them to be. And Father, our hearts are still far from you at times. Though we've been washed clean, our feet get dirty. And we are so prone to wander. We are so prone to be distracted. We are so prone to get caught up in the distractions of this world. And we need your spirit to help us to remove and to purge us of all those things that distract us from seeing you as more glorious, more joyful. We sing about the unparalleled joy that we have in you, and yet we so often find our joy in the things of this world. Forgive us, Father. We confess that to you, and we ask that you would help us this morning. Use these texts like this today, and every text that I feel like we've been through in Luke, Get our eyes and our hearts focused on you and off the things of this world. May we be useful to you, I pray, as we leave here today in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're in Luke chapter 12, parable of the rich fool, as in verses 13 through 21, is we my focus this morning. My main point this morning, um, sort of borrowing some phrasing from last week, <clears throat> My main point this morning is that the fear of God will replace empty covetousness with joy-filled generosity. So again, the fear of God, a proper fear of God, will replace empty covetousness in our hearts and fill it and replace it with joy-filled generosity. And as we go through this parable, we're going to kind of uncover two distinct types of people, those who are rich toward self, and those who are rich toward God. I'm going to be referencing that a lot. We're going to be drawing those, that contrast. Uh, this parable is going to highlight some characteristics of those who are rich toward self. And I'm going to borrow from some other texts to emphasize and highlight the contrasting characteristics of people who are rich towards God. And I suspect that within this room of this size and this, that there's a few different categories of people in here as well. 
there's going to be people who totally disagree with everything I'm saying. Those are going to hate what I have to say, what the Word has to say here, hopefully what I have to say as well. And there's going to be those who agree and who recognize. And they're going to make some changes in their life. The Lord's going to stir in their heart and be moved. They're going to be changed while the others just dig in and press in and say no and rebel and continue down this path of gluttonous desire and consumption. There's also those in this room that have a lot. It's easy to look at this parable and say, this relates to them. There's people in this room who have so much, and there's people who have so little in this room. If you are the one that has very little, I need you to still listen because it still applies to you. Even though it's about bigger barns and surplus and the heart issue still deals, you still have to deal with this heart issue, just like the rest of those in this room who have much. So don't be too quick to dismiss the truths that are here. And there's also kids in the room, five-year-olds, 85-year-olds, maybe not 95 there's kids, all ranges of sizes. And if you're a kid, a child who has no job, no source of income, don't think this doesn't apply to you as well. The issue is not necessarily about how much money we have or how much wealth we have. It's something deeper that applies to you, whether you're five or 85. So we all need to be listening. Everybody in this room has some applications and implications for this text. Let's get into it. <clears throat> Let's start rocking in the rocking chair. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness or greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all my crops. Thank you, Liz. Or is it Joanna? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So starting off, we have some context. We have a guy, we have Jesus talking to them about, this is on the tail end of a, basically seems like a sermon that he's preaching to a crowd, to a bunch of people. And this guy in the crowd yells out, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He wanted Jesus' help to get what he wanted. And I'm inclined to think either the brother was being unfair in his division of the inheritance, or rightly so, the older brother had right to double portion, and this guy didn't like that. 
He wanted equal share, and he wanted Jesus to help him divide it. He had a craving for more than what he deserved or what he was owed. And I tend to favor the latter based on what follows in the context of this passage. And he said, man, who made me arbitrator over to you? You can almost hear him say seriously, after all that I've been saying, by talking about dragging you before the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the religious elite, and they're going to have you give an account for what you believe and what you don't. You're either going to be standing, denying Christ, or affirming Him and being affirmed in heaven. These are weighty things Jesus is talking about. And this is what comes to your mind. I want my money. Help me get my money. Out of all the things, how could this be running through this man's mind and heart? Why would he be so bold as to ask this? Maybe he sensed that difficult times were coming. Maybe in the context of what Jesus was saying, he rightly thought, there's some choppy waters coming up. Maybe I need to get my finances in order. I don't think I'm going to have enough. I may need some reserves. My brother's getting double the portion. I wouldn't mind having a little bit of that in light of this trouble that's coming. They might take my house. They might take, who knows what's going to happen. Persecution's coming. I need to get my finances in order. So maybe it's not that far of a stretch of a thought. Maybe we feel the same way as we see the climate of our day. We see choppy waters ahead. We see financial collapse happening at any time. The dollar how can it get any more valuable? How can the Dow keep growing? It's going to collapse soon. Maybe we need to put our money in bitcoins or <clears throat> gold. Hide it in our cellars. Probably some wisdom there, perhaps. But it's certainly not a foolish thought. It's certainly not unreasonable for this man to be saying that in light of what he's hearing because we feel it in our own hearts. But regardless of the question, or regardless of what we might be thinking as we come upon dangerous situations or difficult times, Jesus gives it practically zero attention. He dismisses it, and instead he focuses on the heart of the issue, which he is so good at doing. Don't you wish you could parent or deal with your friends like Jesus does? Just get to the heart of the matter and really deal with the issue that really matters. I wish I were better at that. In verse 15, he continues, and he goes on with this principle, teaching moment. He gives a principle and an exhortation. He says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. And here's the principle. One's life, for one's life, does not consist in the abundance of his things, of his possessions. In other words, true life is not in what we have. It's more than that. Therefore, be on guard. Be alert. Because life is more than just what we have and the abundance, not that just that consists of the abundance of our possessions, we need to take care. He's telling us to be alert, to be on guard against all covetousness or greed. And the degree to which we take this seriously is the degree to how much we believe that principle to be true, the principle that life does not consist of the things we possess. Covetousness, by definition in the Greek, the word that's um, interpreted as covetous, 
some other translations, it's greediness. But it's a state of desiring to have more than one is due. Greediness. And it, it has the idea of an insatiable. You know what insatiable means? It's never satisfied. Can't be satisfied. It's insatiable. It's greedy. And it's a state of desiring more than what is due to us. Um, I wonder if we're aware of those tendencies in our own heart. That insatiable desire for more and more and more, especially in America. Do you see it? Do you feel it? Do you even recognize how much we need, how much we require? I touched on this a little bit when we talked about give us this day our daily bread and how inconceivable it was to us to think that he might actually just be talking about food. Surely he's talking about something more than that. We're so caught up and so accustomed to having so much that we don't even, we've lost, I think, we've lost sense of reality of what basic need even is. And if you don't understand and you don't recognize and you don't admit that we all struggle with this, you're not going to be on guard. And you are not going to guard against covetousness. You're not going to guard against it. You won't even know it exists. You're blind to it. And I fear that most of us are quite content to keep enjoying the fruit of our labor, right along with the rest of the people in the room. We compare ourselves to each other, and we think, we're all partaking of this apple. So we're not affected. We just don't see it as a threat to our soul. We don't see it as a threat to the mission, to this church, to our friends and to our family. We don't see it as a threat to the church around the world, to our brothers and sisters who are really desperate for things. Pat shared a story the other day about the refugees in Burkina Faso. They have no food because the people won't let food come in. They won't let any aid come in. And these, I mean, I'm sure it's some Christians, some non-Christians alike, but there's people, he said they were boiling leaves just to try to get something from it that they could feed themselves. This happens all around the world, guys. <clears throat> we throw away more food than, it's just sick, to be honest. Consider the following. If you think that we're not caught up in this, consider the following. One of the, I read an article about one of the biggest, best investments that you can make as an investor is in storage units. It's pathetic. I mean, you see them pop up everywhere, right? You can't drive more than three blocks and find another storage unit being built. Self-storage. It continues to be one of the largest. So if you're looking for ways to expand your, your wealth, it might be a good investment. Houses are constantly getting bigger. I mean, if you just look, I mean, it's probably unfair to go back to like the 1800. I think Abby and I, we went on a little trip. And we went and visited some cottage, some little cabin that some famous person, I don't even remember who it was, they grew up in. I mean, it, it could not have been as big as, I mean, it would have fit on this stage probably. And it was the entire house. And they were like a family of 12. And they lived in this one bedroom place, one room. It wasn't even a bedroom. Now, granted, it was, you know, 1800s. Maybe unfair. But still, you go back 50 years. 
it wasn't that long ago that <clears throat> six to eight hundred square feet, six to eight hundred square feet was common. And around the world, it's common today. Less than that. You look at some of these homes that um, Pat goes to with you know putting these little furnaces in, and he shows pictures of these things. That's not just a room in their home. That's their home. That's the extent of it. It's maybe a couple hundred square feet. This is normal today. And yet we, we are, are now it's 6,800 or 4,800 square feet. 4,800, not 4,800. Homes are getting bitter. We can't deny this. And we're filling every square inch of it, by the way. I know we are. Now, a lot of this I'm speaking about myself. I hope you get that. <clears throat> we're filling every square inch. It's not like we're building these big homes because it's practical to be built that way. We're filling it, and we're just needing how long does it take before we grow out of it? Pantries keep getting bigger. We built a home, and the pantry, it's the bit, one of the biggest laments that my wife has is she wishes she had a bigger pantry. So it ends up we put food in like the laundry room and stuff like that. Freezers, microwaves, refrigerators, everything's measured in like cubic feet now. And it's like it keeps getting bigger and bigger. I had a hard time finding one that would actually fit in the space that Darren had built for us. There's only like three refrigerators. The rest of them are too big. So cars are getting bigger. Lawnmowers are getting bigger. I just bought a 48-inch wide deck lawnmower. And that's not even the biggest one. They make 60 and they make bigger ones. Big lawn, you need a big lawnmower. It takes too long. It's about efficiency, right? It's about practical. <clears throat> TVs are getting bigger. And not only bigger, they're getting more numerous. We have how many TVs in our home now? iPads for every child, multiple entertainment streaming subscriptions, beds are bigger. That's, I mean, you go look at some of these old homes, you look at the beds, even the beds are bigger. Desks, little antiques, little desks that people sat at, and you're like, how did they, how did they even work at this? It's like, desks are bigger, everything is bigger. Tables, dressers, closets are getting bigger. Have I made my point? I mean, seriously, guys, this is this is the reality we all live in, and we all deal with it. And I guess the issue is not so much are we falling, are we, in, uh, are we enjoying these things? That's not really the heart of the issue. I mean, because sometimes you can't go, you can't go to a, a place and buy a small fridge, even if you thought like that was going to be a righteous thing to do. It's about the heart. It's about... And I have to say this, you know, while my boys, just kind of joke, while my boys' shorts keep getting shorter and shorter and smaller, everything else seems to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? That's the reality. And it's just, it's sad. It's, it's, it's the reality in which we live, and I expect it from the world. I expect it to be that way from the world. If you came from a, a pile of goo and there's no purpose to your life other than just to eat, drink, and be merry and to live for this 80 years, I would expect it to be lavish and just as much as money could buy. Take it all in. Because at the end of the 80 years, it's over. I would expect that from the world. I don't expect it from us. 
and don't expect to see it from us because we're the ones who are demanding it. We are the consumer, and we crave it, and we demand it, so the market responds. Self-indulgence and excess is at an all-time high, and it's not just a problem outside the church. It's a problem inside the church, and it has huge implications and consequences. It feels like an unstoppable runaway train, to be honest. I've heard it described. I feel like I'm in a hamster wheel. And I just can't get out of it. I wish I, you know, sometimes even I wish I could. Or I referenced last, last time I preached about the monkey trap. Sometimes I feel like that monkey who just can't let go. And if he would just let go, he'd be able to get his hand out of the little bottle. But he can't let go of that little banana. And so we just, I feel like we're just that, we're, we're trapped. We, we know and our hearts just feel unsettled as Christians. They should feel unsettled about how we manage and how we view and how we consume and how we are desire for more and more. And we just can't can't fathom getting out of it. We can't figure out a way to out. And we must ask ourselves, what is at the heart of all this abundance and cons- consumption and waste? If it's not covetousness, if we're not at the point yet of admitting that it, it is covetousness is the issue, if we're not there yet, what is it? Is it wisdom? Are you calling it wisdom? Consider the ant stores up. Is that the one verse you're going to go to to... We need to be willing to call it what it is. We have to identify the threat before we can kill it. We have to identify the sin before we, by the Holy Spirit, can kill it. And so Jesus tells us to beware and to guard against this insatiable desire for more and more. And he reminds us that there's more to life than this stuff. Whether you're a Christian or not, there's more to life than after this 80 years. You either go in eternal hell or you go to eternal bliss and joy with our Savior. But either way, this 80 years is short. Don't live for this. He's telling us that this life is more than just the abundance of our stuff. And this is not a weak, passive exhortation from Jesus. It demands our attention and our fear to some extent of what we are capable of. How often we play with fire. We foolishly think that we can control it. There are consequences. Think of 1 Timothy 6. You don't need to necessarily turn there, but 1 Timothy 6 tells it like it is. And we should take warning to playing with fire, the fire of wealth and desire for money, desire for riches. And it says, Paul tells Timothy, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Just to want it does that. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But he charges Timothy, you, O man of God, flee these things. He doesn't say control it. 
Jesus says to avoid it, to be alert. And Paul says to flee it. We don't just hold our things loosely in our heart and think that's enough. We're playing with fire when we do this. Your life is revealing. This is important. And this is true. Your life is revealing what you believe about all this. You can't outthink it. Your life is revealing it to a world around us that says, what's more desirable? Things? Or something else? <clears throat> so, contrast number one. Contrast one between the, those who are rich towards God, self and those who are rich towards God. Those who are rich towards self, they are completely unaware and oblivious to their tendency to be covetous, to be greedy. Those who are rich toward God are keenly aware of their tendency to be covetous. They hate it, and they guard against it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the renewing of the mind through His Word, they attack it, and they fight it, and they flee those things. I know that won't fit in your little lines there, but... They're keenly aware of their tendency to be covetous, and they guard against it. So verse 16, let's continue on. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? Right thinking begins foundationally with the reality that the land produced the plenty, not the man. We are often tempted to think that what belongs to us is what, everything that we have belongs to us. And therefore, we can use it as we see fit. I earned it. I produced it. I got the education. I went to the, you know, made the sacrifices that were necessarily necessary to, to get me where I am today. I put the hard work in. It's mine. What I've earned is mine. It's my house. It's my truck. It's my, my, my. But, but here's, here's the reality, guys, that there are plenty of people in this world who are way smarter than you, way more educated, way more hardworking, way more capable, and they, make, they can't make ends meet. It's not by their choosing. For whatever reason, their land just hasn't produced like your land has, and my land. So don't be arrogant, number one. Don't be arrogant in thinking or assuming that you are the reason, the key ingredient to your success and to your plenty. It's not about you. The hard truth is, is that everything, we need to get this, everything belongs to God, period. And if we've received anything, we received it from him. And it's solely because he's loaned it to us and he expects that we would steward it well. Psalm 50, verse 10 through 12 says, For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Job 41, you ever feel a little down and out, <clears throat> feel a little, go read Psalm, the last part of, Psalm, of, of Job 39, 40, 41. 
But here in 41 verse 11, he says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God alone is the one who has the right to say mine. He owns all of it. And we have to start with an understanding, and it's critical that we get the fact that everything belongs to him. We own nothing. It's all just a, it's like a fleeting, it's grass that withers, right? The flower fades. It's all on loan from God. And all of it's a test. Whether we have much or whether we have little, it's a test. So God alone has the right to say mine. And so contrast number two emphasizes the fact that those who are rich towards self have the idea that all that I have is mine because I earned it. All that I have is mine because I earned it. And those who are rich towards God say all that I have belongs to God. It came from Him and it is for Him. Period. We have to get this. If we get this wrong, the rest of it's just going to be legalism. The rest of it's just going to be trying to conform to certain rules about what we think is enough. We have to start off with the fact that God, it's part of that fear of God piece, right? It all belongs to Him. We own nothing. It should humble us. And this rich fool's error in thinking that everything was his, look at how many times it's had the word my, my, my in it, led to an extreme self-focus, had no regard for anyone else around him, and how his excess could possibly be a blessing to someone else. My grain, my goods, his greed had blinded him to all that was going on around him. And we are vulnerable to this same blindness as well. Let me ask you, what do you tend to do with your pay raises? Assuming you get some. You know, most of us probably get some, whether we get it through grown sales or whether we get it through cost of living increases or advancements in job opportunities. But pay raises, what about tax refunds? What do you do with those? How about those COVID stimulus checks that we've been getting over the last 18 months or so? The more you make... Is it the more you give, or is it the more you consume? Do you view the more you make as mine? Or do you can tend to keep a growing percentage for yourself, blind and oblivious to the needs that are often brought up? I mean, we, you have to be under a rock to know there's a ton of needs within just this body alone, much less the churches and the, and the, the few churches that we've partnered with around the world. It is a bottomless pit, literally. I mean, it, it feels like that. The, the, the financial needs around the world are massive, and, and they're legitimate needs. Does it ever even enter into your mind when you get that bonus or you get that check? Statistically, there's no relationship between the more we make and the more generous. There's no relationship. There's almost an inverse relationship between what we make and how generous we are. You look at, this was a long time ago, I looked at a statistic about Mississippi, uh, the poorest state in the country per capita was the most generous state per capita, if that tells you anything. 
The reality is the more we make, the more we can buy, the more we can keep for ourselves, and the bigger hamster wheel we get in. There's no relationship between what we make and how generous we are. And if it's true for us as well, we need to ponder it. We need to think about it. We need to talk about it with each other because we're all in this together. Across a dinner table or Wednesday nights or whenever we can be together, we need to be talking about this. Not in a, not in a way of like, <clears throat> what's the, let's establish a level together. That's not the focus. We talked about that when it's like, who then is my neighbor, right? You're asking the wrong question if you're asking, what's the, what's the line that we can all kind of conform each other to? We'll lower it to this much, and we'll each lower it together, and we'll kind of stack the, stack the deck in our favor, and we'll all feel good about ourselves. That's not the goal. In contrast to this rich fool and our own perspectives at times, listen to the heart of God in Deuteronomy 15. Verse 7. I'm just going to read a few, uh, few key parts of it just for sake of time. <clears throat> He's talking about the blessing that's going to be coming to them when they enter into the land. But there's going to be some poor people that, that pop up from among them. And he's saying, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against the poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not do it grudgingly. You shall give to him because for this the Lord, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. He's commanded him, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. That's the heart of God. It's not laws we follow. That's the heart of God, and that should be our heart as well, to open, freely open our hands and be ready to share. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, again, that's every one of us in here, Charge them not to be haughty or arrogant, <clears throat> nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. This is how you enjoy it, by the way. Yes, he's given us all things to enjoy, but this is how we enjoy it. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. They get it. First Timothy's calling us to get it, to be the rich <clears throat> towards God who do this. We're generous and ready to share. I always think of the Macedonian churches and the example that they are to me into us as a body in 2 Corinthians. Oh, there's a lot of good stuff in 2 Corinthians. We should probably go through that book. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We've read this before, but I just want to emphasize it again in light of this context of the heart posture of one who is rich towards God, being generous and not stingy. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 8. <clears throat> we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test in affliction, listen to this, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, 
have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So they had abundance too. Their abundance was in joy. And they had nothing. They had extreme poverty and affliction, and yet they overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and even beyond their means of their own, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. These are the saints in Jerusalem who were being persecuted and needed some help. They just loaded Paul up with stuff. How can we help? They weren't living for today. And that's what I want for us. I want that for me, my family, for everyone in this room, for this church. So contrast number three, those who are rich towards self are selfish, and they are hardened against those in need. They're selfish and hardened against those in need. They're blind. They're not, they're not even, they wouldn't even think they're being mean. They're just they're totally oblivious to it. Those who are rich towards God are generous. They're in touch with the needs They're generous and ready to share. When somebody brings a a need to their attention, they're thinking, how can we help? This grace that they've received and their abundance of joy is overflowing, right? Into how can I help? They're generous and ready to share. Verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, Drink and be merry. I think what's interesting here is it's like, this is just basic human life. This is what we all crave after. This is what we all want. He says to his soul, I mean, this gets to the very heart, his essence of who he is. This is everything. This isn't just my belly. Fill my belly for today. This is like soul. This is, gets to the very heart of his pursuit of who he is. It's the core of who we are. We all crave security. We all crave relaxation or peace, comfort. We crave satisfaction, being satisfied in things. And we crave joy. We crave happiness and joy in things. It's not surprising at all because that's the way God designed us. It's the way he made us. He gave us these hearts with these longings and with these cravings. First Chronicles 29 just talks about how when the plans were being made for the temple to be built, Solomon's temple was going to be built, and David had pulled a collection. And like all these people just came and they gave and they gave and they gave. And he was just overwhelmed with the generosity of the Israelites. And he was attributing it to God. And he was giving praise to God. And he was doing all these things. And he said at the end of it, They offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the day, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand rams, some estimated to be like billions of dollars worth of stuff. I mean, it's just a massive amount of stuff that they gave to the Lord. And it says, and and they gave with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel, and they ate and they drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. Eating, drinking, gladness, joy. That was a good context, right? This isn't a bad. It's not always bad. 
Ecclesiastes 2.20 says, There is nothing better for a person than that he eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Eating, drinking, being satisfied, and finding joy and pursuing these things in life is not the problem. I point these two things out for that reason, to let you know that it's okay. God has put you with a heart, has made you with a heart to crave these things, to desire these things. We don't go wrong in pursuing security, joy, satisfaction. We don't go wrong pursuing these things and wanting these things. Where we go wrong is where we look to fill them, to find them. Jesus came to offer us the abundant life, true life. He came to offer us ultimate security. Read the Psalms. Listen to how the psalmist talks about God as his refuge and his shelter and his safety. We all want peace. We all want satisfaction. He came to offer all these things to us in himself. So the contrast number four. Those who are rich towards self, they pursue security, peace, satisfaction, and joy in their goods, in their things. Those who are rich towards God pursue security, peace, satisfaction, and joy, all the same things. They pursue it in Jesus Christ. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? This represents the ultimate wasted life. <clears throat> you imagine getting to the end of your days, having toiled and toiled and toiled and built, and just even celebrated the, the fact that you built bigger barns and all this stuff that you had accrued, and you get to the end of it, and you don't get to hold, you don't get any of it. None of it goes with you. It's all... It's all a vapor. Just read Ecclesiastes and, and think about the just striving after the wind. It's all futile. It's all pointless in the end. But that's all you live for. This rich fool represents the ultimate wasted life. And I hope you've seen today that we can be pretty similar. It's the fruit of no regard for God and what he's doing it's the fruit of no fear of God. And it's the fruit of just self-love. Self-pleasure, self-desire, self-finding satisfaction in everything but God. So the results, the results couldn't be more stark. For those who are rich towards self, it's, the, it's just the wasted life. And it ends in death. And for those who are rich towards God, it's abundant life. It's joy. It's everything that we've longed for and craved for since we were a baby. It's the, it's the, it's the realization, the fulfillment of everything that we long for in Christ. The abundant life that he came to offer us. So don't be, verse 21 says, so is the one who lays up treasure. That's the one who's rich towards self. Versus rich towards God. Don't be the fool who is only rich towards self. You will find yourself lacking in the end. <clears throat> Don't live for these 80 years. They are short in light of eternity. We need to have a kingdom focus. We need to have an eternal focus. And we need to be reminded. This is a, 
there's a ton of cautions. There's a lot of warnings in Scripture. And so we need to be reminded here, Luke 8 talked about the soils. <clears throat> and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear the word. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit never matures. Or consider Demas, 2 Timothy 4. Demas deserted Paul. Why? Anybody remember? I think Brian taught this not too long ago. He was in love with this present world. And don't forget the rich young ruler we'll be getting to in five or so chapters, <clears throat> chapter 18 of Luke. The rich young ruler who was felt like he had done everything to inherit the kingdom, and Jesus said, you lack one thing. He saw right to the heart. He said, you lack one thing, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. And he left sad because he was rich. He had wealth. Couldn't do it. And Jesus responds by saying how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He says it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. It's hard for a rich person to feel desperate, to feel in need. Such a, such a foundational truth to what salvation even is, to be dependent. These are pitfalls that we have to be on guard against. And we're thankful that he ends that by saying, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So we have hope. I know I'm not the only one who feels so similar to these passages that we just read. <clears throat> and I don't want us to be fooling ourselves to be fooling one another or thinking that we might possibly be fooling God, proclaiming to know the truth, proclaiming to be a follower of, of Christ after some mental recognition or assent to truths about Jesus, hearing the truth of the gospel, all the while being choked out by the cares and riches of this life. There's no authentic faith. No transformation happening, just a proclamation, just in a, a mental ascent to truths about who Jesus, maybe some facts about what we've heard about him, and yet all the while we're being choked out by the cares and riches of this life. Or we share our love as if we could, share our love between God and this present world. We've got feet in both boats, right? What did Jesus say about that? talking about money again. He says you'll either love the one, cannot serve both, cannot love both. You'll either love the one and hate the other. It's a love-hate relationship. It's an either-or. There is no sharing love or affection for God and this world. It's an either-or. And we're unwilling, like the monkey, to let go of our things in order to follow Jesus on his mission which is ultimately 
ultimately is not at stake. He will finish the mission. He has promised to finish the mission. But we have to understand that at best in all this, if we struggle with this and we struggle with this and we just are oblivious to it or our hearts are numb to it, at best we're just really immature. We're redeemed. God's got us. But we need some heart work. At best, we're redeemed but very distracted and immature. At worst, we're unredeemed. We're unregenerate. And there's some in this room who I'm sure are going to be all types in this room that are unredeemed and unfit to be his disciple. They're disqualified. No matter how many times you come to church, no matter how many good things you do, Second Corinthians, again, 13.5, Paul tells the Corinthians there to, at the end of his letter, examine yourself, to see that you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't ask me. You're going to have to go to God for this. Go to his word. Examine yourself. Look inside. Ask yourself where, <clears throat> where are you looking for your joy, your satisfaction, your pleasure? Is it looking in the things of this world? Or are you looking to Christ? I know that the Lord's mission cannot be stopped. Here we're closing. Cannot be stopped by us or anyone else, but for, here's really what I think is at stake. <clears throat> for God's glory and our joy. That's at stake. I don't want us to be a people who are walking around, fiddling about with the things of this world, saved, but just so caught up in things of this world, so, such a meaningless life and such a joyless life that we all just get bogged down together. I don't want that for us. Our joy is at stake in all this. God's glory is at stake in all this. And I pray that we will be a people who are, one, keenly aware of our tendency to be greedy, to be covetous, and that we hate it. We guard against it. And two, that we truly believe that everything, everything, everything belongs to God. It's all from Him and it's all for Him. And as a result of those foundational truths in our heart, that we would be generous and ready to share. That we would always and forever pursue our peace, our joy, our satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Who? 2 Corinthians 8 again. Though he was rich, this is the God we serve. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Not financially, rich towards God. Christ came that we might be rich towards God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that uh, your word, it cuts. We need it, and we thank you that you have, with you, all things are possible. And so we just confess to you our desperate need for you. We confess to you that we are so easily caught up in the things of this world. We pray that you would help us, Father, to navigate these waters well, that we would pursue you, that we would dig into your word that we would seek to know you more and more each and every day, to fall in love with you more and more each and every day. Um, the rest all just falls into place. So God, help us. 
as individuals, as families, as this local church, I pray that we would get this right for your glory and our joy. I pray in Jesus' name.